So Ecclesiastes 3. Last week we covered the first half, verses 1 through 15. Tonight we'll finish it out in terms of uh, chapter 3 and on into chapter 4. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Last week we looked at the fact that in chapter 3, in the opening verses, we looked at the fact that uh, uh, our great God who is sovereign and who is in absolute control, He uh, oversees um, the details of your life and my life and all of human history and the life of every individual who walks the face of the earth. Um, he, he, is, he is an amazing God. Uh, he is knowable, yet He is incomprehensible. He is not like us. Um, he, has, um, he has created the world. He has created us. Um, he has a plan for the ages. He has a plan for your life and a plan for my life. That's kind of how it starts out in Ecclesiastes 3. There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven, and God has planned it, and God has appointed it. It's not suggested, it's fixed. And as you read down through Ecclesiastes, we don't want to take too much time on, on review here, but you have uh, 14 sets of opposites. Beginning in verse 2, there's a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, time to uproot. He goes through basically everything that encompasses our life. You get the good and the bad. You get the thrill of victory, and you get the agony of defeat. You're going to get it all in life. And here's the thing. It's all been appointed by God. Um, we can understand that God would give us all the good things, but according to Scripture, not only the good things, but the hard things and the difficult things and the disappointing things and the things that break our heart come from His hand. Uh, Thomas Watson, the great old Puritan pastor, said, whatever the affliction, it is the Lord who has sent it. Uh, just think about Job. That may shock you, but just think about Job. You say, yeah, yeah, Steve, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Job was afflicted by Satan. Yes, he was. But Satan had to have God sign off, you see, because our God is absolutely sovereign. Um, and this raises questions. We have no problem accepting the good things that God does. We have no problem being thankful for the, for the promotions in life, from the advancements in life, when we have good health, when our marriages are going well, when our kids are on the right path. I mean, yeah, we'll take that. Thanks, Lord. We're very, very grateful. But man, when things go south in the marriage, when well, we get sick, when a kid goes off the deep end and you just can't believe that's your kid because you raised him differently or you raised her differently and all that. See, when the bad stuff happens and we're saying, wait a minute, these things, there was an appointed time for everything, even that stuff? Yeah. Well, now we got a problem. Uh, this is where, and, and, and Solomon is very, very honest. Um, we got to be honest about life, and we got to be honest about the Christian life and the difficulties in the Christian life. Bad things happen to good people, and it's part of the plan of God. And when it happens to us, we don't get it, we don't understand it. Uh, you get down to verse 11. It says that God has made everything appropriate in His time, or He has made everything 
beautiful in its time. Well, sometimes life is not beautiful. And I guess kind of the theme tonight that we're going to look at and the rest of Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 would be this. If, if God made everything so beautiful, then why does life get so ugly? Because there's some ugliness in your life and there's ugliness in my life. There, there's, there, there are things in your life and in my life that are not beautiful and that we don't get and that we don't understand. Yet, clearly, God is a God who is in charge and God is a God who is in control, good and bad. Um, this raises a real dilemma. In, in 1939, in one of his speeches uh, on the BBC, Churchill was addressing the nation, and the issue had come up uh, about what was going on with the nation, Russia, you know, Hitler and Germany and that whole thing. But they're asking, what is happening with Russia and what's their strategy? What's Russia going to do in all of this? And Churchill said this in regard to Russia and their strategy. He said, it is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. We have no idea what they're doing. We, we don't know the strategy. We can't figure it out. It is somewhat, he, he made some suggestions, but they were just some thoughts. Um, it is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. To me, that's a big part of the Christian life. His ways are not our ways. <laughs> and that's what puzzles us. We think God's going to do things a certain way in our lives, and then he doesn't do it, and it shocks us and it stuns us. We expect God to act a certain way. And there are times when God, quite frankly, doesn't act like God. And it really throws us a curveball, and it blindsides us. Um, I, I love this, this, this phrase. It is a riddle. Riddles are hard to figure out. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery. God is mysterious. Um, I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things, the things revealed belong to us and our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord God Almighty. There are secret things that we will never under, that are part of God's plan that we will never understand on this earth, ever. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the bandwidth. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. How do you define enigma? E-N-I-G-M-A. Here's the definition of enigma. It is a person or thing that is mysterious, puzzling, or difficult to understand. That's often God. And this applies to the ways of God, especially when things go wrong in our lives. And things go wrong in our lives. Uh, John Newton, the great pastor and hymn writer, uh, wrote Amazing Grace and hundreds of other hymns. The former slave trader, um, astonishing story. He, uh, he had a ministry of, uh, he did a lot of counseling with people by email. Uh, actually, it was an email, but he wrote letters. There used to be this thing they had called writing letters, and you would take a pen or a quill, and you'd have an ink pot, and you would actually write with your own hand, you'd write letters, and then you'd seal them up, and they would deliver them. 
and weeks would go in between, and then someone would send you back. He had this thought. His letters were so profound, they've been published. And this is a letter that John Newton wrote to a man who had written a hymn. Uh, the date is December 4th, 1777. And uh, the heading on this letter is Comments on an Accident. An accident. The man had a young boy who, uh, just being a young boy, boys are curious, reached up on the stove. Parents didn't see him. Uh, couldn't see what was in the pot, but the pot was full of boiling water and reached and grabbed it and poured it on himself. And it was horribly burned. The man wrote to John Newton. Here's John Newton's reply. My dear sir, poor little boy, exclamation point. First words out of his mouth. Poor little boy. It is mercy indeed that he recovered from such a formidable hurt. The Lord wounded and the Lord healed. I ascribe with you what the world calls accident to him and believe that without his permission for wise and good ends, a child can no more pull a bowl of boiling water on itself than he could pull the moon out of its orbit. And why does he permit such things? One reason or two is sufficient for us. It is to remind us that the uncertainty of life and all creature comforts, to make us afraid of cleaving too closely to pretty toys, which are so precarious, that often while we look at them, they vanish, and to lead us to a more entire dependence upon himself, that we might never judge ourselves or our concerns safe from outward appearances only, but that the Lord is our keeper, and were not his eye upon us, a thousand dangers and painful changes which we can neither foresee nor prevent are lurking about us at every step, ready to break in upon us every hour. Men are but children of a larger growth. How many are laboring and planning in the pursuit of things, the event of which, if they obtain them, will be like but pulling scalding water upon their own heads? They must have the bowl by all means, but they are not aware of what is in it till they feel it. There's a perspective. These guys that went deep with God, they got a different take on things. Men who have been deeply hurt and this guy was deeply hurt. Men who have been through the, the fire, men who have been in the furnace, men who have been devastated, have a different take on the work of God. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 3 and into 4, there are uh, six enigmas of God's providence. There are six puzzlements. There are six riddles. There are six enigmas that Solomon 
just lays out on the table, which seemed to counteract the fact that God is good and God has uh, fixed things and there is a plan for your life. And, and they cause us to scratch our head. And, and he just takes them on. Um, so let's take them on. Let's jump into them. Um, and I got to tell you, I love this. I love it. Because it's so cotton-picking real and it's so cotton-picking honest. Um, I want to go ahead and give you all six in the references. And then we'll go back and work our way through. Okay? Six enigmas. Enigma number one. The courts are unjust. And I say amen. And so do a lot of you guys. This is nothing new that the courts are unjust. That's in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's the next enigma. Under the plan of God and the providence of a good God. Here's, here's the second one. And this is 3.18 to 21. Everyone and everything dies. Here's number three. This is chapter four, verses one through three. Here's the third enigma. So many people are oppressed. Number four, the fourth enigma. This is chapter four, verses four through six. Work, your work, your vocation. Work can be vicious. Absolutely vicious. And some of you guys as you sit here, are in pain because of what's happened as you have gone about your work and your business trying to earn a living. More on that in a little bit. The fifth enigma in this good plan of God, okay? That includes good and bad. Here's the fifth enigma. This is in verses, uh, apt, apt, let me go back. It's chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Uh, Best way I can describe this, loneliness is lousy. Loneliness is lousy. And if you're by yourself, you would say, I agree with that. Said in Genesis, early on, it is not good for the man to be, anybody know? Alone. We're not designed... You watch an old Western, it's always the independent, self-made guy who doesn't need anybody. I love reading Louis L'Amour novels. That's how I go to sleep at night. I don't read theology at night because it gets me all pumped up. And I'm exhausted. I, you know, I, I can't read heavy stuff at night. I used to, but not anymore. I just read, I usually read Louis L'Amour because there's a, there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and there's a girl in trouble and the good guy is going to make it right. And there's closure. And justice is going to triumph. Just helps me go to sleep. I usually can go, um, I can be pretty, you know, wound up. And I, I can usually go two, three, maybe four pages, and I'm out. Because I know it's going to be all right. Because I've read it 14 times before. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating much. But the idea, uh, one, of, one of the Moore's things is that the good guy, 
is self-contained, and he never depends on anybody else, ever, ever. That's where he's wrong. Sixth enigma. Uh, this would be in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. We'll read this in a little bit, but I would describe it this way. Life gets ugly when you lose a teachable spirit. Life gets ugly. Your life, my life, gets ugly. He makes all things beautiful in its time, uh, verse 11 says. Things get ugly when I lose a teachable spirit. All right, let's work our way through this. Let's go back to the first enigma. Let's read chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun. Remember the phrase, under the sun. He's looking at life from the secular viewpoint. He's looking at life in regard to life without God. I'm banging this drum every week because... Um, we, we are being fed this secularism everywhere in our culture, everywhere. And the secular viewpoint, secular education, you can boil it down to this. Um, this is the only world that there is. And, and if you've been with us in our study, you know that Solomon kind of started strong. He, you know, he had a godly father, David. David was going to build the temple, but God said, no, you've got too much blood in your hands. Your son will build it. So David got him all ready to build the temple when he becomes king. Uh, the Lord appears to Solomon twice. Uh, he starts out pretty strong. Uh, he's on track. Um, does all right maybe through midlife, but he's got some cracks. He's disobeying the word of God. Can't take much time on this. He's, he's not, his exterior is good, but inside he's, he's, he's willfully disobeying what he knows God wants him to do as a king, Deuteronomy 17, 17. Um, and, and he gets into midlife, and it starts coming out. And in 1 Kings 11, he's marrying all these foreign women, which God said not to do. And just as the warning was, if you marry the foreign women, they'll turn your heart away from me. That's exactly what happened. And he went off the deep end. And instead of living life under the wisdom of God, which he'd been given, he started living a completely secular viewpoint of life. So he's exploring and examining all this stuff. Verse um, 16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. In other words, the courts are unjust. There was a problem then, it's a problem now. You've seen that statue of uh, the woman, Justice, and her eyes are blindfolded, but they're holding uh, a set of scales and showing there's no prejudice and justice will be in the balance. Well, the problem is, is that huh, the hearts of men and the hearts of judges, and we, 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 are, uh, we, we are living in an age of increased lawlessness. In our nation, we have lawlessness at the highest levels. The highest levels. Absolute lawlessness. Now, the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. First John says many antichrists have gone out. There are a lot of junior antichrists. And they've always been around. And their lives are characterized by lawlessness and rebellion to the word of God and to the law. They're above it, you see. 
And sometimes we look at that and we, how can this be? How do these people get away with this stuff? This is unbelievable. And, it could, and really, it could cause you to stumble. Uh, the guy in Psalm 73, he's about, he's about ready to tank his faith because his whole thing is, why do the wicked prosper? I mean, if I got emails like that, I'm going to jail. But I mean, they, they just Teflon. They just, they just slide through and they do this and they do this and they do this and they do this and they do this. And I don't get this. And I'm getting pounded. I'm trying to follow you. And what, what, is, what, is, what is going on here? What is up with this? And the guy in Psalm 73 reaches the same conclusion that Solomon reaches in verse 17. The, guy, the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 73 doesn't get resolution and closure and peace in his heart until he thinks not about the present, but he thinks about the end. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. In other words, there is a judgment. And if you look at the end of Ecclesiastes, he drives that point home. There is a judgment and everything will be brought before the living Christ. All judgment has been given to the Son. Things will be handled. We don't need to practice vengeance. Someone's done injustice to you. There's all kinds of injustice. And every guy in here has had some kind of injustice. Maybe someone has lied about you. Maybe someone has sp spread dirt on your reputation. Maybe someone has betrayed you. They have said things online or things the customers or... Uh, a former wife is trying to poison your kids, or, I mean, it happens. Uh, you were in a church, and now they're upset, and they're talking about you. Stuff happens. This stuff happens. So what do you do? What do you do when it happens in marriage? First Peter 3, he's talking to wives and husbands. He says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. But give a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who longs to see life and live good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceitfully. In other words, don't you dump in, jump into the pot with him. You leave it with me. You let me handle it. Let me tell you something. When you're falsely accused, I'm going to tell you something. Jesus knows. He knows. He, his eye is all over you. He knows injustice. He sees it. And you know what? Just take a step back and say, Lord, it's in your hands. It's in your hands. And it is in his hands. No one can thwart his plan for your life. Uh, Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. All of my times, the good times, the bad times. And then tie that. I always, I always tie Psalm 31 with uh, Psalm 138.8. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Yeah, but they're talking about me. They've, they've harmed me. They've done this. I should, have gotten that pro I should have had that promotion, and I didn't get it. Okay, you didn't get it. You've got to take a step back, because that can really throw you. That hurts when you should have had the promotion, and there's a backroom deal, and someone else gets it. Psalm 75, not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert comes promotion, but promotion comes from the Lord. When he's ready to promote, huh, he can't be stopped. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the right time he may exalt you, promote you. So you just leave it with him. Okay? Injustice will be handled. Second enigma. Everyone and everything dies. 
Aren't you glad you came tonight? Now, you, 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 already, you, you already know this, and I know it. Death is brutal. Death is an enemy, the Scriptures say. Uh, de- death is the great enemy, but Jesus has beat death, and Jesus has conquered death. But death still hurts. Now, life under the sun, I, I Mary reminded me this the other day when our daughter was a senior at in high school, uh, went to a public school, but man, a lot of Christian teachers, uh, Christian choir director, Christian principal, superintendent of schools. Somehow they got this teacher in who had an agenda under the sun, secular, atheistic, and she dictated that at the graduation ceremony, nothing could be sung or said that had anything to do with God or Christianity or the Bible or anything like this. And I remember sitting there and hearing those, that, that choir in a public school, a lot of those kids, the majority of them, had a Christian worldview. If they, they either had a personal relationship with Christ or had a Christian worldview. And here's what they sang at that graduation ceremony. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. Same old song. Let's stand and sing this together. (laughs) You know the tune, the group Kansas. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. That's a lie. You last forever. Well, how do you know that? Look at Ecclesiastes 3, uh, verse um, 11. He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart. When you die, when human beings die, we don't go out of existence. Uh, Let's look at verses 18 down to 21. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, the sons of Adam, By the way, all the sons of men, the sons of Adam, were all sinners. Uh, The soul that sins shall surely die. Sin came into the world through Adam, and death came in. When sin came in, there was death. Death is a result of sin. Uh, We are dead in our trespasses and sins. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But the free gift of God, Romans 6.23, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But he's looking at this under the sun. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them or exposed them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. That's pretty strong. You know, sometimes men act more like beasts than beasts do. Men can be much more wicked than beasts. Men can do things to other men that beasts would never do. You think about the wickedness we see in our nation, the depravity. 19, 
For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. Now, this could be misunderstood, but he goes on and explains it. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. What he means is, we're all going to die. Beasts die and men die. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. Now, now he clarifies. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Here's the difference between men and beasts. Men are made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In God's image, he made them. We have mind. We have soul. We have spirit. We can create. We can think. We can plan. We can build. Beasts don't do that. Beasts are not made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God, and God has put eternity in the hearts of men and women. He has not put eternity in the hearts of animals. They die. They go out of existence. They have no souls. We have souls. We live forever. Either with Christ, because we've received forgiveness and pardon through his blood, or eternally separated from him in hell, as Jesus taught. And that decision is in your hands. Um, now, as Christians, we know that Jesus has conquered death. Uh, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he, what? Live. live. It's far better, Paul said, for me when we did our study in Philippians. It's far better for me. I, I don't know whether to stick around and help you guys out. I mean, I really just, I'd rather just go on and be with the Lord. That's far better. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You see, we know that. But see, when death happens, even to believers, it still hurts. Because it's death. But we, we, we know that our loved ones who, who die are in the presence of Christ. But we are here without them, and it hurts. Uh, death is unpredictable. Death can be by our... Um, we have expectations about life and about people in our lives that we love. We kind of have expectations. You have expectations about how long you're going to live, and those who you love... You, you kind of have expectations for everybody how long they're going to live, don't we? Yeah, we do. So you see, but what happens is death can come too soon. You're really, your wife's pregnant and you're so excited and then that baby's born, stillborn. A few months ago I did a service for a couple and I hadn't met them, but some friends, I knew their friends, they asked me, I heard the circumstances, I said, yes, I'll do it. That little baby boy was born with the cord wrapped around his neck. And when I heard that, I said, I'm going to do that service. Because I was born with the cord wrapped around my neck three times. Now, why was I born and lived and that little guy didn't? I don't know. I don't know. But it's part of God's plan for that little guy. You say, no, that, no. No, it's what Scripture teaches. The days of a man's life were ordained. Uh, death can be too soon, but death can also be too slow. Someone you love who's suffering, someone you love who they just, they're hanging on. You, you ever pray, Lord, just take them? In your mercy, Lord, just take them? Just go ahead and take them, Lord. And he doesn't. Sometimes us, it's just, it's, 
and, and it puzzles us. What are you, what are you doing, Lord? Uh, sometimes death can be too shocking because there's a car accident or there's this or they, someone just drops dead. My, my brother Mike just dropped dead, Got, walked in his office, sat down, and just dropped dead on the floor. Had a daughter graduating from high school that week. That was just shocking. Too shocking. Uh, Philip Ryken pointed out that the Trappist monks have a practice in their monasteries. They've done it for hundreds of years. You know, a group of men and they kind of get away from the world and it's what they do. But uh, they have their little compound that they share and they have their little area where they bury their dead. And uh, what they do is when they bury one of their men, they have the service and then immediately they dig right next to it another grave. And it's open. And then part of their daily regimen is they have their prayers and different things. But at a certain time each day, each one of those monks will go and spend time by that open grave. To think about his death. And therefore, how do I want to live my life today? And then in 22, Solomon says, I have seen nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. What? Is that kind of a disconnect? We're talking about, uh, <laughs> this is why this book is so fascinating to me. You got all this heavy-duty stuff. You got injustice, you know, in the high places where there should be righteousness. There's injustice and it. People are hurt and taken advantage of and, it's just horrible and, you know, bribery and all this stuff. And then death, you're going to die. Your dog's going to die. Everybody's going to die. And, you know, eh, I have seen that nothing is better than man should be happy in his activities. What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> just out of nowhere. I mean, do you have any transition here for me? Can you help me with this? This is kind of like cold turkey, man. Right in the middle of this. And then when he's done, he goes back into more enigmas. What's this about? I love what Tommy Nelson said about this. Tom, Tommy said this. He said, do not let what you can't understand destroy what you can enjoy. I want to say that again. That's so profound, I want to say it again. Do not let what you can't understand destroy what you can enjoy. Can we understand everything about God? No. Will we have resolution and answers to all of our enigmas and riddles about God on this earth? No. Don't let that become so overwhelming that you can't enjoy what God has clearly given you in life to enjoy. I mean, if you go back to Ecclesiastes 2, and see, he's going to hit this. He drops this in at certain points in Ecclesiastes. Uh, 
2.24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that is from the hand of God. Enjoyment is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? There's a kind of enjoyment without him, but it's temporary. It doesn't last. But there's a deep-seated contentment. There's a, it, does everything in your life have to be perfect for you to enjoy the favor and the goodness and blessing of God? No. No. See, this is where Paul said in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content. We, 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 we learn to live with things that are unanswered. I might have said this last week, I can't remember. But it was C.S. Lewis who said that he believed that when we would die and we'd go to be with the Lord, we'd look around and the first words out of our mouth would be, of course, of course. Huh. Huh. I could have had a V8. <laughs> now I get it, but I don't get it now. But there'll be closure. Now we see in a mirror darkly, dimly, but then face to face. It's all going to be explained one day. Um, is life full of enigmas? Yeah. But life is also full of things that are very, very clear that I have been blessed and enjoy the goodness of God. Is life hard at times? You bet. Is life puzzling at times? Yeah. But there are also many, many things in your life that you look around and you, you, quite frankly, you should be full of gratitude and overwhelmed with the goodness of God in your life. Do not let what you can't understand destroy what you can enjoy. So I like to say, go eat a cheeseburger, man. <laughs> go watch a ball game. You know? Go to the park with your grandson and feed the ducks. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Go to Chili's and eat uh, queso with your wife. Go have some fun. Chill out, man. God's been good. Are there issues? Yeah. But he's running the show. He's got you. He's got your back. Don't sit around and watch Fox News all day long and listen to talk radio. That just screws you up. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I thought, I mean, I thought that poll, I thought this. Does God run even that? Yes, he does. So how much time are you going to spend on this stuff? when God's already foreordained who's getting in. I'm not saying if you, I'm not saying don't, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying don't let it disturb you and upset your life when God has a plan that cannot be thwarted. So, you know, manage your time, budget your time, but don't let it screw you up. Now, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we turn to the wonderful subject that people are oppressed. <laughs> Boy, this guy's just, I mean, this. This is, you're not supposed, to, this stuff's not supposed to be in the Bible. We want everybody smiling. We want everybody happy. We want everybody rich and healthy and that, that, hey, 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 you know? But, but, but look, what does he say? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Uh, 
Then I looked again. See, he keeps looking. Have you noticed these phrases? Look at back at 16. He says, furthermore, I have seen. Uh, then you go to 22 of 3. I have seen. 4. Then I looked again. He's looking at life. He's looking at the good and bad of life. So, 4. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. Before I walked in here, Don Crucius pulled something out. He said, hey, did you see this? They tortured and killed 300 Christians. ISIS did. Some, it's, the wickedness is unbelievable. But Jesus, read Matthew 24, Jesus said it's going to come. And it's going to get worse. You know it's going to get worse. Well, I'm just trusting God, I won't go through the tribulation. Well, I'm all for that. But I'm going to tell you something, you've got Christians that are going through tribulation right now. There will be a great tribulation. And see, the real question is, the real question is not, well, what, Pastor, do you think, uh, you think Christians are going through the tribulation? See, that's not the question you're asking. The question you're answering is, Pastor, do you think I'm going through the tribulation? That's the question. Well, I'll tell you this, you're going to suffer. It's part of the Christian life. Uh, I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. But they had no one to comfort them. And, and see, this can be so overwhelming, you, you get into despair. So, look at this. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Have you ever thought to yourself, life gets so hard? You ever thought to yourself, I'd be better off dead? Have you ever had that happen to you? Yeah, you have. Probably. A lot of guys in here have. Or have you ever said to yourself, I wish I were, I wish I were dead? I, I know of six Christian men in evangelical churches around the DFW area in the last four, five, six years that have committed suicide. Shocking. Three, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. You can get so overwhelmed by the evil and the oppression in people's lives that it's just absolutely overwhelming. But see, it's his will that you live and that you live now. And there's oppression. There's always been oppression. There always will be oppression. See, so, so, so I wish I could do something. You can do something. Jesus said, if you give a cup of water in my name, can you fix all the oppression? No, nobody can don't try to fix all the oppression. But he'll bring individuals into your life, into my life, who in different kinds of way are oppressed. Someone who's been deeply hurt. Someone who doesn't trust because they've been so wounded. He just brings them along. He brings them right into your life. And, and what do you do? They've been hurt. And you look around and... well, I could do this for them, then do that. You can't help everybody. But see, that's someone he's brought to you. So what do you do? You do it in Jesus' name. You do it in Jesus' name. That gal's pregnant, and her folks have turned her out, and there's nowhere for her to go, 
and you've got a spare room and your wife know her and friends with your daughter and all this and hey mom dad do you think she could stay here in Jesus name Well, that'd be inconvenient. Yeah, it would. But, you, but see, we get inconvenience and we help the oppressed in Jesus' name. Uh, the next enigma. Aren't you glad you came tonight? But this is tough stuff, but it's real. And may I say this? It's all part of God's plan. And, and you know what? He's done a work in our lives. And he's brought us to know Christ. He, this, just, this stuff doesn't just happen randomly. Um, I, I've told you before the story of uh, Harold Macmillan, who was a prime minister in England, I think in the 60s. Uh, his family, you know, classic British upper crust, you know, wealthy aristocrats. Macmillan Publishing, that's his family business. But uh, he was speaking at Oxford or Cambridge on one occasion and gave a speech and the students, they had a question and answer and someone asked him, Mr. Prime Minister, what is the greatest challenge to a leader in these days? And he said, events, my dear boy, events. Events. And what he meant by that, the greatest challenge to a leader all right, you got a calendar. Can you believe you got a calendar on a phone? But you do. Most of you guys. Uh, but you got a calendar somewhere. And on that calendar, you got events. You know, I got a dentist appointment. Or I got this. Or I got that. Okay, you got it. We all got events. <clears throat> see, in, our, in your life and my life, there are planned events. But see, in the plan of God, there are, lot, there are events that he has planned for you and for me that we know nothing about. Those are the unforeseen plan events. And when those unforeseen plan events come up, it shakes us. It's the greatest challenge. That's what McMillan, what's the greatest challenge to a leader? Events, my dear boy, events. Like Hitler invading Czechoslovakia, or ISIS doing this, or da-da-da, or that, or that. You see, it's unforeseen by you, not by God. It's unforeseen by us. But he's got a reason. It's not random. It's not chance. It's the plan of God, and he's got something in mind. Yeah, what is that, Steve? I don't know. Except he wants me to respond, and he wants me to turn to him and ask him for wisdom, because I don't have what it takes to handle this, and I'm puzzled, and I'm confused, and I don't get this. And it hurts. I talked to two guys this week. Monday night, I talked with my friend Ron, who farms and ranches 4,000 acres in Nebraska. I've known him and his wife for about 15 years. They were in town, I had dinner with them. 
Ever since I've known Ron, he's been sick. And then he gets better, and then he gets sick, and then he gets better, and he's had everything. I mean, if, it, if, it, if it's a disease, he, this poor guy gets it. He's always going to the doctor. He's always getting tests. And great guy, loves the Lord, great, great, great family. And, we, and last time we saw him was March. They were in town, and then we haven't really talked much. I just knew he really, got, he really was in bad shape. His daughter texted us, and uh, I texted him, didn't hear back. The reason I didn't hear back, he was in such bad shape. And he was bringing me up to date Monday night. And uh, in September, he, 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 he was so bad, he was so sick, he had such headaches, he had such sweats, he was, his blood pressure was so low, he was, just, he was just sick. And he knew he was going to die. He's telling me this at dinner. He's saying, my gosh, Ron. And he was going to die, and he had a brain infection that he got probably in 1987, 1988, when he bought a herd of cows and they were infected and he got rid of them, but somehow he caught this from those cows. And he's going to die. He had to get his affairs in order. And, and there's one doc says, hey, there's this um, um, uh, oh, specialist in um, something disease, um, infectious diseases. You got to talk with them. This last kind of gas, last thing, last hope. And because we see this and we see this, we can't figure this out. And as they're heading over there, his wife's reading something, and she's saying, Lord, you just got to show us. You just got to show us. You got to show us. And she's reading something in a Mayo Clinic thing, and she's reading this and about this. And all of a sudden, she starts reading this description of this, and he's got every single symptom. First time she had clarity. She calls her daughter because, see, this happens in a lot of third-world countries, that you get this from cattle. Well, their daughter had been on a mission trip for a year in rural Africa. Her daughter's a nurse. She said, I'm thinking, what do you think about this? She said, my gosh, I've seen that in Africa. Dad's got every symptom. He's had it ever since I've known him. He's going to die, and they figured it out. And you don't get one antibiotic. You got to get two in the right dosages, and... I've never seen him look better. He had a brain disease. Loves Christ. He's dealt with this for 20 years. The next day, I'm studying, and then I took a break. I thought I'd go over our lot because they're getting ready to pour a foundation. I just thought I'd go, I'd drive over. I just needed a break. I drive over there. And uh, I get out of the car, and a guy pulls up, and he said, Hey, Steve, we haven't met. I'm Keith, and I'm Michael's partner. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're the silent partner who's always in the office. He goes, yeah, I'm always in the office. And we just, you know, I just wanted to say hi. I was out here today, and we've been working with Michael. He said, yeah, great, good to see you, man. And we start talking, and I said, how long have you guys been working together? And he's telling me and all this, and he said, yeah, and we started this house, and we did this, and da-da-da. And, you know, things started getting, things really started going well, and all of a sudden I got sick. I said, you got sick. He said, what happened? He said, well, they had no idea. But long story short, and then he took 45 minutes. It was unbelievable. <laughs> no, I mean this. I wanted to hear every word. Because you know what he told me? He said, I got a brain disease. This was 12 hours later. I'm talking to this guy. I got a brain disease. I said, really? And they couldn't figure it out. And this guy is built. Both these guys are right at 60. This guy, looks, he's, he looks like a linebacker who could still play. I mean, this guy is a... He's a chunk of granite. 
Hardly any fat on him. He said, yes, yeah, I was 120 pounds uh, five years ago. They, uh, I'm going to die. In fact, you got so bad. And he starts telling me all this, and then he has tears. And he said, man, I'm sorry. Excuse me for crying. He said, you don't need to apologize to me. He said, well, you know, this, this has really changed me. I said, you know Jesus? He said, oh, yeah, man, he's in my heart. <laughs> I could tell. He said, he, this, this turned me around. I said, huh. I said, you know what God does? He takes strong guys and he makes them weak so he can save our lives. He saved your life, didn't he? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, hey, I, I cry like that. I know what it's like. I could outcry you any day of the week, man. <laughs> he said, what happened to you? I said, well, I went through a depression, but I want to hear your story. He told me a story. And he's telling me a story. He sounded just like Ron the night before. Brain disease, same symptoms, all this. And he said, when they came in and said, we think you got brain cancer, and this doc said, listen, man, you've got maybe, I want to tell you six months, but I think it's more like three. And then, i got to tell you this, when you wake up after this surgery, um, we're going to have to cut your optic nerve and you're going to be blind. And you're probably going to have paralysis on one side of your body. What do you do with that? And he said, you know, they had no hope. They thought it was cancer. They got in there. It wasn't cancer. They traced it to an infection when I was bit by a dog. And we told them that, but they couldn't figure it out. And when they got in there, they figured it out. And I woke up in recovery, and I could see. He loves the Lord. He said, he said this changed me. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Does not God work strangely? He said, I used to complain about going to work. Now, I'm thrilled I can work. I used to complain about doing the laundry. Now, I love doing the laundry. I love doing anything because I was going to die and be blind and paralyzed. And he said, I'm a better man, Steve. My brother got sick right after I did, and he died, but we took care of him for seven months. He said, I took care of him. It was a privilege. Everybody looks fine in here, but everyone's not fine in here. There's hard stuff going on that puzzles you, and it's an enigma. For some of you, it's work. Let's finish this out. Let's go to chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Work can be vicious. That's basically what he's saying. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done, watch this, is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Now, he, he's, he's going to talk about... Let's read the verses and I'll come back. All right? Rivalry at work between a man and his neighbor. Have you ever seen rivalry at work? You ever seen competitiveness at work? You ever seen backstabbing at work? You ever seen gossip at work? You ever seen backroom deals at work? You ever seen, yeah. You ever been hurt by that? Yeah. All right, now, okay. Um, look at verse 5. He switches gear. The fool folds his hands and consumes 
and consumes his own flesh. The fool, what now? Folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. In Proverbs, he calls this guy the sluggard. The sluggard is a guy who won't work. He wants pleasure, but he doesn't want to work. He's entitled. He's entitled. He doesn't want to work, but he wants everything. Uh, then he goes to six. He says, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. What is this about? Is it not possible to get consumed with work? Yeah. See, there are three types of guys that are described here. And I knew I couldn't pull this off, so I'm going to let Warren Wearsby do it for us. So listen to what Wearsby says. He says in verse 4 is the, industrious, is the industrious man. It was natural for Solomon first to find a laborer who was working hard. That's the guy in verse 4. Working hard is a virtue. Uh, this is a man who's not only busy, but he's skillful in his work and competent in all he did. He had mastered the techniques of his trade. Watch this. So much for the worker's hands. What about his heart? It was here that Solomon had his next disappointment. The only reason these people perfected their skills and worked hard at their job was to compete with others and make more money than their neighbors. The purpose of their work was not to produce beautiful or useful products but, or to help people but to stay ahead of the competition and survive in the battle for bread. C.S. Lewis says the essence of pride is wanting to be just a little bit better than everybody else. It's not, it's not, it's not doing a good job. It's wanting, to be, it's wanting just to be a little bit better. Be number one. Wiersbe says, God did not put this selfishness factor into human labor. It's the result of sin in the human heart. We covet what others have. We not only want to have those things, but we want to go beyond and have even more. Covetousness, which is the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. Covetousness is running amok in America. I want what you've got. We have presidential candidates running on covetousness in this nation. You can't even write down all the rights that you've got. Competition is not evil, is not sinful of itself, but when being first is more important than being honest, there will be trouble. Traditional rivalry between teams or schools can be a helpful thing, but when rivalry turns into riots, and we see that, sin has entered the scene. Then in verses 5 and 6, you've got the idle man. The idle man's the sluggard. Uh, Derek Kidner says of the sluggard, he won't begin anything, he won't finish anything, and he won't deal with anything. He's just a sluggard who wants pleasure, provided by somebody else. And he says about the sluggard here, uh, the fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. I got a picture here from Wired Magazine of a toad eating, uh, has a beetle in his mouth, and he's eating the beetle. Uh, but I read the article, and in actuality, the toad is not eating the beetle. The beetle is eating the toad. It's a certain type of beetle, Epimus actually entices frogs and toads and salamanders to attack them, then whip around and sink their huge hook jaws into the attackers, slowly draining the life out of them. When larvae transforms into adult beetles, they get right back to it, and now they dispatch amphibians even more brutal. They get in, and they're toxic. Within, uh, within days, 
that, that, that toad is, is a shell of just skin, and they have consumed it and eaten it. Wildest thing ever. That's what happens to a man who doesn't work, who can work. A man who can work and doesn't work is consumed. His own flesh will be consumed. And along with, and so he has no self-worth, he has no self-dignity, he has no productivity because men are called to work. He's a sluggard and he's a fool. And then you have in here, you have the integrated man. In verse 6, he's a man whose life was balanced, he was productive in his work, but he was also careful to take time for quietness. Do you see that? Look at uh, 6. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after win. If you're going after work, if you're a compulsive worker, you're missing the good stuff of life. This is why God instituted the Sabbath. See, there's a time when you need to just cut back and chill out and get a cheeseburger and go to a ball game or just hang out with your family and not check email and do all this and just be so... Enjoy life, man. It's a gift from God. One hand, see, that's the balanced life. How do I find balance? By losing it. It's like riding a bike. The way you find balance, how do I find balance between my family and career? You find balance by losing balance. It's how you learn to ride a bike. How do you learn to ride a bike? By losing balance. I remember my dad took off the training wheel the first time, the training wheels. I was kind of scared, but I know I can do it. I'm 19 years old. I'm really excited. And he's running alongside me, holding the seat. And he said, all right, Steve, I'm going to take my hand off at a certain point. You're not going to know when. So you do it. And I'm running, you know, and I'm kind of looking, and I'm looking, and I can't see. And, and I'm going, and all of a sudden, he had his hand off, and I started to lose balance. How do you find balance? By losing it. And then I compensate and lose it. And then I'm, that's life. Rest and work. See, I don't know how to do that. You ask God to help you. And we're always making adjustments. That thing has been seeing zero for 40 minutes. <laughs> um, now you see it's the obvious about loneliness in verses 7 through 12. Loneliness is lousy. Uh, actually, when you look at verse 8, there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity. It's a grievous task. He works just to work, and he's got no one to give the benefit of his work to. He goes on and says this. See, there's such wisdom here. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Hey, guys, there are two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself, at least not yet. I'm sure some judge will change that. You can't get married by yourself. Here's the other thing. You can't live the Christian life by yourself. You can't live life by yourself. You can't live the Christian life. Jesus sent them out two by two. Bear one another's burdens, thus fulfill the law of Christ. You say, well, Steve, I'm not married. I don't have any prospects of getting married. All right, well, then you better have some friends because you can't live in isolation by yourself. C.S. Lewis wasn't married until he was in his 60, almost 60. But he had a group of guys called the Inklings, and they met at that pub in Oxford once a week. And they just talked, and they hung out, and had a few brewskis, and, you know, talked, and he wasn't even a Christian, some of them were, and, you know, he winds up being a Christian. 
But he had friends. You can't live in isolation. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. Woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. This is why if you're struggling with something, you can't do it by yourself. You can't beat sin by yourself. Bear one of those burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. How can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. You know what? We were designed for relationships. So here's what I get from this. Whatever relationships I have, keep them in good repair. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Some people you can't be at peace with, but others you can, so be at peace. Um, here's the sixth one, verses 4, 13 to 16. Uh, basically, life gets ugly when you lose a teachable spirit. And this one at first, you're not going to see this. Let me read the verses, and I'm going to comment when we're done. Life gets ugly when you lose a teachable spirit. Now watch this. We're going to read verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no, longer's, who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. He could be talking about his dad, David. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Every young king gets old, and another king's going to replace him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after the wind." It looks like there's a principle here, and the principle is, is that, listen, if you want to be popular, you're going to be disappointed because popularity is fleeting. You know that, and I know it. Paul went into a city. He was doing healings. They said, you're a god. The next day, they're stoning him to death. Okay? All right. That's in there. But here's what you can easily miss. It's in the first verse there that we read. For he who has come out of prison, verse 14, even, no, 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 it's thir I want 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than the old and foolish king. Watch this. The old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction or who no longer knows how to receive warning. Why do we go through hard stuff? Why do we go through stuff that puzzles us and and Lord, what are you up to? What are you doing? I don't get this. I don't understand this. Um, usually, there are lessons that God has for us to learn. And whatever it is you're going through, you may not get an explanation until you get to heaven, but I think there's wisdom in praying, Lord, this event in my life, this hardship is not an accident. What do you want to teach me? If you're a young man, you want to be teachable. If you're midlife, you want to be teachable. If you're an older guy, you don't want to get hard and crusty and difficult. You want to be teachable. These two guys I talked to Monday and Tuesday with brain cancer, uh, brain, uh, brain infection. You know what I sense from both of them as I talk with them and all they'd been through? They both 
as one guy I talked to for two hours and the other guy the next day, 45 minutes, fascinating story, kept telling me the lessons that had been learned. The lessons that had been learned. The lessons that had been learned. But if you're not teachable, you never learn the lessons. And you never grow up. The goal of the Christian life is not to grow old in Christ. The goal of the Christian life is to grow up in Christ. And to grow up, you got to be teachable to learn from the pain and to learn from the hardship so that you can say with David, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Lord, this stuff is not easy. It's difficult. It's hard, but it's real life. For the guys with broken hearts, heal their hearts and speak to their hearts. We come to you. We have nowhere else to go. We thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. And we thank you that when we are confused, you're not confused at all. When we're in the dark about our lives, you're never in the dark. You're never in the dark. Darkness and light are alike to thee. And when we're confused and when we're puzzled, and it's so mysterious, and we're absolutely overwhelmed. The psalmist said, when I was overwhelmed, Psalm 142, you knew my path. You've got a plan. We trust you with your plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.